Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning into this podcast from the Connecticut Certification Board. The CCB is a not-for-profit workforce development organization whose mission is to protect the public by enhancing recovery-oriented workforce capacity. On behalf of the board of directors and staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to Scope of Practice. Joining us today is Andrew Kessler, principal and founder of Slingshot Solutions, a Washington, D.C.-based consulting firm that focuses on behavioral health policy. Andrew received his undergraduate degree in political science from Washington U in St. Louis and earned his JD from the American University in Washington, D.C. He has written legislation and report language published by both the House and the Senate and has presented orally before such bodies as the Scientific Management Review Board, the College on Problems of Drug Dependence, and the National Conference on Addictive Disorders. He is a frequent contributor to Politico, The Hill, and Alcohol and Drug Abuse Weekly. He has represented the CCB in Washington for several years. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you, Jeff. To start, I'd really like to just uh, talk about something you know, broad and say, in the years that you've worked on Capitol Hill and around the DC metro area, how have things changed for those working in behavioral health policy? Things really started to change probably around 2014. I've been working on this issue since about 2001. And I've worked on several aspects of the behavioral health continuum. I've worked on um, research concerning, you know, um, scientific neuroscience research coming out of the National Institutes of Health. I've worked on treatment and I've worked on prevention and recovery services. And from the time I started work on that in about 2001 until 2000 and maybe 13, 14, there were a few members of Congress who, who got the issue, who understood its importance, who understood that um, the ways we used to think about it um, in terms of people who um, struggled with these conditions um, may be less worthy of our time, may not be able to ever function in, in society. And um, there were a few champions on Capitol Hill who, who, who carried us, but we really never had much of a, a spotlight on us, and we never really uh, got much further than those, those few champions. Our victories were, were small. Um, starting with the opioid epidemic, um, well, actually, let me, let me take it back. We started doing a little bit better in terms of legislation and funding in about the mid-2000s, maybe 05, 06, when methamphetamine was making um, a, a surge. And a lot of the Midwest that hadn't experienced necessarily this kind of scourge in the past was really starting to suffer under the weight of, of drug use. Um, you know, Missouri, Iowa, uh, Kansas, th those areas really uh, started to um, see the effects of, um, of chronic drug use. So we started to pick up a little steam there, got some legislation passed, and um, then that turned to uh, the, the attention started to turn to the abuse of um, prescription drugs uh, in Appalachia. Um, and we know today about, you know, looking back, how those markets were flooded. Um, so starting, yeah, around 2013, things really started to change. Um, and within maybe three years, 
going up to 2016, it became, I feel comfortable saying, the top public health issue in, in, in Washington, in policy. Everyone wanted to talk about it. It became the centerpiece of some policy discussions during the 2016 election. Um, we saw more and more legislation being written, and um, it was driven in large part not only by the number of cases we were seeing and the number of overdoses we were seeing, but by who um, was was being impacted. Um, I, I think we all know that once suburban and rural America started to um, deal with this problem, politicians started to wake up and nothing's going to make a politician spring into action more than their phone ringing off the hook. And when phones started ringing off the hook as a result of the opioid epidemic, that's when things really started to change. So um, I've seen it go from being an issue that a few people dealt with here and there to the top public health issue in Washington. But I also know that no one stays on top forever. And um, even now, I mean, even even as we see COVID-19, you know, which may be a, a rare exception um, in terms of public health emergency, kind of knocked us off the podium. But um, no, 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 no one issue stays on top forever in, in Washington. So I, I'm kind of... Um, always got one eye open on what the future holds and how much longer can we, can we hold that top perch? I had a chance to witness that statement, you know, an example of that statement you're saying with you, I think we were at the uh, was uh, council for behavioral health funding, or I, I can't remember what it was where it was just after the suicide of Robin Williams and somebody in the meeting said, well, your time on top is over uh, <laughs> addressing the fact that opioids were, uh, coalition for Behavioral Health Funding, or I, I don't remember what it was. Coalition for Health Funding, that's right. Health Funding. And they said, well, now it's your your, your turn is over. And, it, and weirdly, that didn't happen. But also uh, something that happened regarding the getting opioids on top, we can't say that without acknowledging the fact that um, drug policy in the country has always been racist, starting with the Harrison Act. Um, when I was in Indianapolis, my first trip to train in middle America, I mentioned the fact that in the in the Northeast, people have been dying from heroin for years. Um, and it didn't become an issue until it was suburban white youth. Um, yeah. Uh, because the, the crack response was significantly different. Of course. And, you know, th th there, there's no denying that, um, whether we're talking about, and I've done presentations specifically on this issue, whether we're talking about marijuana policy going back to the twenties, um, and it's focus on, you know, um, black communities and specifically, you know, entertainers in the jazz industry, what have you, in, in New Orleans and other Southern cities, uh, whether we're talking about, you know, the, the war against drugs and, and specifically crack cocaine. No, there, there's no denying that. And even um, even uh, the outlawing of, of opium, you know, going back in, into the 19th century, you know, when um, there was xenophobia concerning uh, Chinese and, 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 and Asian workers, um, the... Um, there were, uh, it was obvious, how can we target them? Well, they smoke opium and white people don't. So opium becomes illegal. So no, th there's absolutely no denying that. The, 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 the interesting thing that I see along those lines 
in recent policy developments was is um, continues to be a focus on quote unquote rural America, and the um, the discussions surrounding treatment in rural America um, are spurred on by a couple of things. The first is. Well, of course, there's always been substance use disorders and um, and problems with with overdoses in all parts of the country. Yes, we're seeing it at a level in rural America we haven't seen it before. So, yes, point given. Um, but um, and also in rural America, whether it be hospitals, health centers, treatment centers, resources are more scarce. There's no denying that. However, um, we I think have almost gone too far in that direction because I hear, we hear a term in all healthcare delivery and specifically in substance use disorders called underserved areas. And underserved areas is, is calculated by a formula concerning the number of health professionals in any given area. And it's really not an incredibly, you know, accurate portrayal, but However it's calculated, if you want to take the term underserved area, I don't know of a single community in the United States that has all the resources it needs to deal with substance use disorders, urban, suburban, rural, you name it. So this focus on um, rural America that we've seen as of late, um, I don't want to say it's based on a myth because, yes, rural America is seeing spikes in, in substance use disorders and overdoses, but so are urban areas. And actually the use in urban areas and the overdose rates in urban areas, I'm talking rates, not just gross numbers, they're at unprecedented numbers too. And they're almost higher you know, than rural areas. So we can't get caught up in any conversation that says, oh, this community has greater need than that community, um, or this demographic has a greater need than that demographic. I, no one will ever convince me that nationwide we have the resources we need. Um, and the, um, I'm glad to see that people recognize there are shortfalls in certain areas. Um, but, um, just because this problem spread to rural communities doesn't mean it left <laughs> urban right. and suburban. Right. It's not, it's an, not a zero-sum game. It's not a zero-sum game by any stretch. And, and uh, unfortunately, in politics, our um, focus tends to be very narrow. It's very hard for Washington to concentrate on more than one thing at a time. And even when they're concentrating on one thing at a time, even when they're concentrating on something like the opioid epidemic, mm-hmm losing sight of everything else, uh, methamphetamine, cocaine, alcohol. <laughs> you know? So uh, we, what we need more than anything else is the ability to focus on the entire problem in the entire nation. Interestingly, the, the ATTC network defunded the frontier and rural um, uh, ATTC based out of Kansas City. So that was an interesting thing. So maybe like other things, we like just like we solved racism with the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964, we solved issues in rural America so we can get rid of that ATTC that that served yeah. the workforce. Hey, can I make <laughs> one more point about about rural about the sure. rural uh, setting? Um, I was um, the current White House has has put a lot of focus on this and they, in their office of national drug control policy, they, they now have a division of, of rural affairs. Now I, I was in a, a meeting with them where they said that in rural America, 78% of the entire budget 
of counties in rural America goes to one thing, and that's jails. And that was, I, I was shocked. Um, and of course, we know the nexus between substance use disorders and criminal justice in this country. And we can go back to all of the, you know, things we talked about concerning race and whatever. But when you're in rural areas, they tend to be whiter, you know. And so if rural areas are spending 78% of their um, funds on jails, which is due in large part to an explosion in, in, in opioid abuse and methamphetamine abuse, you know, um, you know, it's, uh, it just, it just speaks to how big this, this problem is. The number of people who are in jails because of this, uh, it has so many implications, not just for people's lives, but for economics as well. You know, there is a cost, there is an actual monetary, heavy, heavy monetary cost to it. And, um, you know, I just, you know, as we have that rural discussion, I think it's worth pointing out how, how staggering that number is. And it, it, I don't think there's any other single statistic that points to how big the problem is uh, in, in rural America. Yeah, that's a significant amount of budget. Mm-hmm. Um, something that we've discussed in the past and kind of chuckled about is, is something said by the late Congressman Mike Oxley from Oklahoma, when he said that Congress does two things well, nothing and overreacting. Um, assuming that that's a true statement, uh, what impact does that dynamic play in your work on policy um, that may not be on the tip of everyone's tongue? You're dealing yeah. with things like alcohol has fallen by the wayside, except right. in reality, the use and uh, alcoholism yeah. is sky high. The, the overreaction bit, quote unquote, I'm not going to say Congress overreacted to um, the, the opioid um, epidemic, because if anything, we... We could have done more, but it's not so much in their uh, what they produced. It's in terms of the narrative, uh, and I I will be I am open about this with um, every member of Congress that I've had the opportunity to encounter. Um, someone in my position has to be really careful about how they deliver constructive criticism <laughs> to members of Congress and staff. And the thing is this. A narrative was created that we can point the finger at pharmaceutical companies, specifically Purdue Pharma, and say, this is your fault, you did this to us, and we're going to make sure you don't do it again. So when we think of Mr. Oxley's talk of overreaction, I think that might be an example. It wasn't an overreaction to the problem. It was an overreaction to one aspect of it. Um, yes, Purdue Pharma did horrible things. I don't want to see them off the hook. I want to see them pay. I want to see other pharmaceutical uh, companies pay. I want to see the distributors pay, you know, whether it be McKesson or Cardinal or uh, the chains that, you know, stories have come out about what chains like Walgreens and CVS knew and what they didn't, you know. Um, yeah, and which communities were given the not, most. Yeah, anyone who did not do their part in terms of oversight or regulation should pay. There's no doubt about that. But let's not act like there wasn't a problem before Purdue came on the scene. And second of all, let's not overlook what makes someone more susceptible to addiction when they take those first few Oxycontin than someone else. You and I both know that there can be a person who has some kind of surgery or pain and is given oxy, they take it as prescribed and they're done. 
it happens it, it more often than not then on the other side of the spectrum there is the person who takes a couple and and, and that's they're off and running uh something in their brain something in their behavior uh something you know uh there is a reason that some people react a certain way and others don't so um and we don't have time to get into the neuroscience and and what have you. But to someone like me, and I, granted, I understand the issue better than than most. It's about why someone is susceptible to substance use disorders. What makes them, you know, um, um, have that reaction to their first drink, to that first oxy, to that first line of cocaine? What makes them react in a way that brings them? into the spectrum of substance use disorders. So, um, and this is a very unpopular opinion, but many people say, how many people who um, became an oxy abuser already had, or was already, you know, um, maybe already had an alcohol problem or mm -hmm. already had an issue with, 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 uh, with another substance? It's a fair question. It really is because I've seen members of Congress, I've seen United States senators say, say I've seen, you know, people are prescribed Oxy on Monday and they're shooting heroin by Friday. No, that's not how it works. Right. So the narrative, the overreaction is in the narrative that we have a bad guy. Once we fix the bad guy, the problem's solved. No. Uh, you know that if you were to take all of the pills all the heroin, all of the cocaine, all the methamphetamine, make a pile and put it over here and say, this is the damage that it's caused. It is dwarfed by alcoholism. Right. Absolutely dwarfed. You know, so we're, you know, just because we've, um, you know, identified one aspect of the problem, um, that doesn't mean, and, and so, okay, Purdue goes bankrupt, Oxy goes away, whatever. Something else is going to take its place. Because before Oxy in the 70s and even in the 60s, um, and even still today, the largest um, amount of abuse of a prescribed pharmaceutical is benzodiazepines, not opioids. You know, so, um, you know, a fan, I know you're a fan of the Rolling Stones. Mother's Little Helper was yes, not. I was just thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's real. Uh, so, you know, people have been abusing tranquilizers Valium and Prozac, whatever you want to call it, benzodiazepines remain. And when it comes to the, um, if we can get overly clinical, when it comes to detox, when it comes to treatment, I've heard several clinicians say to me, nothing is tougher than dealing with people who have a problem with benzodiazepines. The so, danger involved in a detox is incredible. Right. So um, the overreaction has come in the form of a narrative, which has led to an action that is dealing with, you know, um, a tablespoon inside the one gallon jug. Yeah, and, and I think the Purdue Farm example tells that really well. It's, okay, we have a problem, but we fixed it, so let's move on. And that, my right. tongue in cheek comment about the Civil Rights Act of 1964, <laughs> well, we don't have a race problem because we solved right. it. No, we didn't. Right. We had legislation, but that doesn't solve any problem. Actually, you you're you're one of the people who likes to t uh, who who first told me the the joke. I think it was uh, uh, Dennis Miller who said, "If we took away all the drugs and all the alcohol, there are people out there who would hold their breath and run around in circles until they passed out." There's a reason. 
Um, there's a reason that 7,000 years ago, the Mesopotamians discovered that the grape juice they left in the cave for a year was really good. <laughs> you know, there's a reason. The brain is going to react in one in 10 or one in nine or whatever the statistic is. People are susceptible. Their neurons are going to fire differently. Their reward system in their brain is going to fire differently. And they will have a problem when they encounter substances that that flip that switch, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And issues like trauma drive that significantly. Um, trauma and, and average and a lot of clinicians are saying that and i had a yeah. conversation uh with, with uh christopher yeah, offered about know, that I, not that i want purdue off the hook now that i'm trying to give the defense team for purdue you know i'm sure there are people smarter than us who they've hired as their lawyers who get paid a lot more money but um i would love to see a study just for the sake of knowledge to satisfy my own curiosity how many people who encountered a problem with oxycontin had experienced trauma or average childhood experiences, you know, there's a reason when you take the Oxycontin, I don't mind telling everybody here, I had knee surgery, I took an Oxycontin, you know, and the first time I took it, I was like, people are making a big deal over this, no reaction. Uh, a few years later, I had a traumatic injury um, and I was prescribed, um, rightfully so, my uh, doctor said, I'm going to give you two, three days worth. And if you need more, call me. But really, for this injury, which was a, a fractured finger, uh, they said, really, Advil and Tylenol should do the trick. And uh, But I couldn't sleep. Uh, took an Oxy. Still couldn't sleep. Took a second. And for some reason, that time, something hit. So, I want to say something hit me. I became completely careless about everything around me. I just didn't care. And and, and I started to think, huh, if I were a victim of trauma or an adverse childhood experience or I had something in my life that was causing me pain, and this made me feel like I didn't have any care in the world, I'm going to take more of it. That's what we're talking about. You know, um, you know, we're talking about something that doesn't just cure the physical pain. This makes your brain say, for people who have this reaction, this makes your brain say, here's my answer. This is what I've been looking for. Um, that's the problem we haven't addressed. Um, over 50% of all people with a substance use disorder have experienced trauma in their lives. That's not a coincidence. And, and, and the I, reality I, is it works. Right. That's why not they take it because it solves not, until it doesn't, but it works. Right. 50%. So either there's something to be said for that. And until we truly address uh, trauma and, um, you know, and learn from it, uh, we're still going to have these issues to deal with. Um, I want to move to something local for us, and it's something that you're very well versed on. Hold on one second. Um, a name that's familiar to people here in Connecticut, Rosa DeLauro. She represents our third congressional district. Um, a lot of people know her name, but I don't think they recognize the importance that she plays. Um, she serves as the chairwoman of Labor, Health, and Human Services, Education, and Related Agencies Subcommittee uh, of the Large Appropriations Committee. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that role in our field? Oh, absolutely. Um, so a lot of people don't realize what how important appropriations is to Congress. And at the end of the day, 
you know, yeah, Congress passes a lot of laws. They create a lot of new programs. A program that is passed by Congress or created by Congress, Congress means nothing until it's funded. And that's where the appropriators, appropriators come in. Um, uh, little beltway humor for people outside the beltway. We have a joke here that says there's three kinds of politicians in Washington, Democrats, Republicans, appropriators. Appropriations in the House and Senate are probably the most sought after committee seat with the possible exception of, well, depending where you're from, maybe armed services or maybe state and foreign ops, you know, um, and in the House Ways and Means. Um, appropriations, if you're an appropriator in Washington, you have incredible power. Now, let's close the circle even further and, and get even more focused. When it comes to appropriations, there's large and there's small. So the largest is defense, obviously. Mm-hmm. There's no, you know, uh, no argument there. Everyone knows that. Even, even the layperson knows we spend most, 50% of our non-discretionary, of our discretionary budget on defense. When I say discretionary, I mean things that Congress has to deal with every year. Um, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, veterans benefits, those are not discretionary. Those will be funded no matter what. Um, I'm talking about where Congress sits down and says, this is how much we're going to fund for each program. So Mm -hmm. defense is number one. And when you take away defense, then you're left with something called NDD, non-defense discretionary. And the largest budget in non-defense discretionary is health and human services, which is chaired. The subcommittee for that is chaired by Rosa DeLauro. And Rosa, as she's known effectively, it's so interesting. Certain members of Congress around town, they're called by their last name. You know, like uh, her, uh, Rosa's counterpart, Tom Cole, who's the Republican ranking member for her committee. He's Congressman Cole. He's not Tom to anybody. To everybody who knows Rosa, she's Rosa. (laughs) It just fits her personality. She's not Congresswoman DeLauro. Uh, She's so, um, you know, She's almost larger than life. If, if for those of you who may have um, had the chance to, to meet her, her outfits, her hair, uh, her, her demeanor, uh, just so, just so um, effervescent and, 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 and so lively. So um, by chairing the Health and Human Services Subcommittee of Appropriations, um, Rosa has jurisdiction over a few agencies that are pretty important to us. First, first of which is SAMHSA, Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, which administers the SAPT block grant. Then there's HRSA, uh, Health Resource Services Administration, which funds community health centers and the National Health Service Corps, among other things. Um, there's the NIH, which funds research, um, NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse, National Institute of Alcohol Abuse. Not only is that research important to everyone in the field, but specifically important to Connecticut because Yale University in Rosa's district of, <laughs> of New Haven, mm-hmm. uh, does a lot of research and, uh, and, and, and they're funded by that. And that, and they also, she also is responsible for, uh, the CDC, um, which, um, over the last few years, over the last like four or five years has seen its, uh, research dollars on, um, substance use disorders and opioids just absolutely go through the roof. Um, which is good because population research is, is, is critical. So, um, a lot of that goes through Miss Delora's, uh, through Rosa's office, and um, CCB being in Connecticut, um, you know, uh, you go to the front of the line. Uh, there, there's no doubt about it. Um, the, if you are from the state that the member of Congress is from, you are at the front of the line, no questions asked. I learned back in 2000, 
three or four, I was um, in my early 30s, I was in my first or second real advocacy job and still learning about, you know, I had been on the Hill, but I was still learning what it took to be a effective advocate. And a member, uh, a staff of the committee I was working with said to me, look, you're, you're good at what you do, but you have to understand, all of your colleagues have to understand, one scientist from my district is worth 10 of you. It's just the way it is. I, I need to talk to someone from my boss's district. So um, that's where CCB has a, a very comfortable advantage um, when it comes to, um, to, to dealing with um, funding and, and appropriations. And, and we've taken full advantage of that relationship. We've been working with their office for years um, on, uh, on these issues. And actually just recently, um, you never know when someone, you know, the reason we have these relationships is not just to advance the causes we want, but just to be available to answer questions and, and guide them through it. Advocacy is not always about give me. Um, it's also about education. And it's also about making sure that the people you work with in policy understand the issue. So we got, um, I got a, uh, an email from uh, Rosa's office just last week saying, I don't understand this. Please explain it to me. And we did. And that does two things. It makes sure that the staff is more educated on the issue. And it also, you know, gives us a little leg up in future, um, future discussions. So Rosa is truly, truly committed to, to all public health. I mean, um, you have to understand that, you know, um, substance use disorders, behavioral health, it's a very, you know, um, it's, it's, it's a small part of of the greater public health system. Um, so it should be a bigger part because it's more pervasive than people are willing to give it credit for. Mm -hmm. It should be funded to, to a higher level than, than it is. But um, no, um, Rosa understands that and her staff understands it. And we've never been told, you know, hey, that's not going to happen. And believe me, some offices will tell you, and, and that's appreciated because you don't have to waste your time with them. They always, they always do what they can to make sure we're, um, you know, we're listened to and, um, and, um, you know, Rosa is just someone who's so perfectly suited for that because she understands that um, there are complex issues that require complex solutions and she's willing to put the money that is needed behind those, um, into those investments. So she's just really, really well suited to, uh, to be dealing with, um, with HHS and, uh, and the funding that goes with it. Yes, she's somebody in Connecticut who uh, I, I, the office is hers. I mean, I don't know if there's anybody that would challenge her. Um, she's had challengers, but could present a real challenge based on on. She's very visible. She talks about things that aren't really comfortable to talk about, um, and she's greatly appreciated. And you're right about it. She has a very big personality and, and fills the room when she comes in. Um, you know, especially nowadays, there's a big difference between what we see on the news, you know, on social media and the like, you know, which is really politics versus the work that's done on a daily basis. Uh, it's something that people generally as citizens, we don't see, certainly in the field, we don't recognize. Um, but there were some, a lot of good examples of true bipartisanship to solve problems. Um, can you uh, talk about some of those examples? 
Well, I mean, you know, most obviously we, we, we have the opioid epidemic, which, which really was, uh, I mean, bipartisan is, uh, it's interesting when, when you say bipartisan, cause I, it, it means something different to me than I think to the, to the person outside the beltway. Um, you know, um, when we work on legislation, we're very much in the moment and you're like, this is what I am focused on, you know, and let me get as many Democrat and Republican sponsors, signatures, you know, support, whatever. So, um, you know, some issues are bipartisan, on the micro level and some are on the macro level, you know, like everyone of, of course supports, you know, on the macro level, you know, you know, national security is bipartisan. Everyone supports it. The question is to the degree that you right. support, you know? Um, so, um, you know, at the macro level, yeah. Uh, the opioid epidemic was bipartisan because it affected the whole country. We talked about before rural urban, you couldn't find a member of Congress where this didn't impact their district. So on the whole, you know, yeah, we had a lot of bipartisan support. I mean, if you want to talk about how much support we have in terms of the sense of Congress, when it came to the final piece of legislation uh, for the CARA legislation, Comprehensive Addiction Recovery Act of 2016, I believe the final vote was something like 405 to 8. You know, I'm not exaggerating. And I believe in the Senate, it was 93 to 1. Uh, I believe Ben Sass of Nebraska was the holdout. Um, and of the, of the eight holdouts in, uh, in the house, um, you know, I think six or seven of them were of the political persuasion of, of a very libertarian anti-spending. It was, it wasn't about the issue. It was about the spending. So yeah, I mean, it was a, um, you know, we, we have had massive bipartisan support on the big level. When you get to the smaller issues is where you start to see some differences. Um, you know, let's be honest, there's a lot of public dollars that go to, um, the support of substance use disorder treatment, Medicaid, you need a lot of Medicaid dollars that's when you start to see it becoming a little trickier. Um, so uh, when it comes to things like, um, you know, should we support doctors over, you know, should we support the, the, the psychiatric profession or should we support the counseling profession? If you're from a district with a lot of doctors and psychiatrists, you may lean one way versus the other. So um, I really do think we have bipartisan support in general for our issue. Um, but uh, it, it, it's a, it, I can, I'm kind of hedging my bets. You could probably hear it in my voice. Yeah. Is it um, fair to say the devil's in the details with that? Yes. Yes. The devil's, the devil's most certainly in the details. Let's look at the 2016 presidential campaign. Both sides went on the stump and talked about this issue. Ted Cruz, Jeb Bush, uh, president Trump, uh, it, President Trump did address the issue. I remember him doing an event in New Hampshire on this issue. Um, Chris Christie, um, and on the Democrat side, um, you know, I, I know Hillary Clinton had, had a plan for it. And even 2020, Elizabeth Warren addressed it. Uh, Senator Klobuchar addressed it. Everyone, everyone had a plan for it, you know. And, um, but, um, yeah, their plans differed based on their, uh, based on their, based on their, uh, you know, spending ideologies, mm -hmm. political ideologies. So 
we do all agree that we have broad bipartisan support um, that we want to do something. But when it comes to, you know, um, unfortunately, the big picture in Washington isn't where work gets done. The work gets done in the details. The work gets done in the very, very small policy arena because all large bills are smaller bills sewn together. So like we saw in the Support Act of 2018, uh, which we could you know, talk about further if you want. It's, it's a perfect segue into where I want to go with this next. It's, it's There is a misunderstanding generally of the legislative process because there's a lot of ins and outs and it's, it's not as simple as, you know, as America, um, we think schoolhouse rock, I'm just a bill. <laughs> tells the story it's a very nice outline for children but it doesn't tell the whole story um, about creations uh, of legislation so i see a lot of argument and a lot of vitriol around a couple of misunderstandings um one of them is the addition of non-related riders on the back end of bills um, i know in connecticut that's a big deal a lot of things get rejected because of that um, can you explain what that is to our people? Uh -huh. On the simplest, well, <laughs> yeah. oh. they say there's two things you never want to see being made, legislation and sausage. Uh, <laughs> and kind of adopted that uh, phrase. There's a phrase here in D.C., you know, people say to you, you know, where are you at with this bill? You say, well, I'm making the sausage. I'm taking little things and grinding it up and putting it together. Um, and I'm not going to ask you to reference Al D'Amato on this one. No, about no, adding things on no. The back I, I, I want to say this. I want to say this. About, I want to answer your, your, your question. Um, the biggest enemy in Washington for a person who does what I do or for someone on the other side, the policymaker themselves, the biggest enemy is not politics. It's not ideology. It's not the White House versus Congress. It's not Democrat versus Republican. The biggest enemy is the calendar. There's only so many days in a legislative session. Um, you need to give uh, members of Congress time, you know, um, time in their home districts. It, it, here, I, I know in the news they say Congress is in recess. That's really not true. In D.C., we call it homework weeks because they go to their home districts and they're in their offices there and they're talking to their constituents, you know, what have you. And um, you know, you need to give them time at home and. You know, there are only so many days in the year and in the legislative calendar. That being said, only the really big bills come to the, the floor, get the schoolhouse. Only the really big bills get the schoolhouse rock treatment, which is House passes their version, Senate passes their version, they conference, off to the White House. They're, only the really big bills get that. So if you have a smaller issue... Um, and I don't want to get into what constitutes big and what constitutes small. Mm. But if you have a smaller issue, your best chance of passage is to a phrase. I, I don't know if, you know, it's a phrase I use, jump on a moving train. You know, uh, your train is one car long and it needs to go from, you know, um, Bridgeport to, you know, Springfield. Uh, is it worth it to hire a locomotive to take your one train from Bridgeport to Springfield? 
or is it more economical and a better strategy to hook it on the last car of a in a Stella that's already going that way? You know, it's it's the answer is obvious. So you try and jump on the moving train. Mm-hmm. So if there is a bill moving through that has to do with you know something completely unrelated to what you're working on, but you know it's going to pass, the best shot you've got is an amendment or a rider. And what the difference is. I'm not going to get into because that's, too, <laughs> you know, that's way too. Um, it, most of the differences are procedural in terms of when they're voted on. Um, but, you know, that's your best chance. So, for example, we're seeing it right now. All this legislation, what's, what's all anything coming out of Washington these days? COVID, COVID, COVID. And we knew that uh, if we were going to get some money for substance use disorders, the only chance is to get it on the COVID legislation. Lo and behold, you know, um, you know, Phase three, phase four. Yeah, there's some money in there for substance use disorders. Uh, there's money in there for everything. You know, let's not uh, let, let let's not let's not kid ourselves. But yeah, it's a matter of process and a matter of time that the only chance you're going to have is sometimes on a larger bill, and it's uh, it's a fact of life, and it's a uh, it's just part of it's just part of DC, and more often than not. Um, there, there, there's, I shouldn't say more often than not. There's two kinds of, there's two kinds of rider or amendment. There's the kind that's genuine. I really want this to pass. It's important to me. It's important to my constituents. It will make a difference. Tack it on. No one seems to care. And, and, and the whole bit. Uh, then there's the really political one, like the Hyde Amendment concerning abortion. Every time mm-hmm. a bill comes up, they tack on the Hyde Amendment to restrict abortion, you know, and it becomes this whole thing because that's a really polarizing issue. Democrats say, I'm not voting for this bill if the Hyde Amendment's part of it. Republicans saying, I am not voting for this bill unless the Hyde Amendment. So there's two kinds of tack-ons yeah. that we, um, we really need to, uh, to be wary of. But it's just, uh, it's been going on since longer than we think. And I think the latter is the one that I was focusing on because you want to sneak, I don't want to say sneak through, but you want to get a technical revision to something in, you know, that's one thing. Um, but if you want to, uh, you know, get something significant, a lot of people don't understand that when the bill is being read, um, somebody continues, somebody sees something uh, that's been added on and doesn't like it, and that may cause them to vote against it. Um, the second part of that that I want to talk about, you actually answered. You know, when you see nay votes on legislation that seems absolutely simple, 100% should pass, like you talked about the eight uh, votes um on opioid issues in the house the uh the fact that it had nothing to do with the legislation it was we don't want to spend money period it was more it was a libertarian ideal so i think that that it's important because that's not what we see in political advertisements he she voted against this but we don't know that Yeah, you can say, oh, so-and-so voted for a tax on this, and it was a one-sentence in this 700-page bill, and, you know, it, it, yes. (laughs) Yeah, It's it's not a lie, but it's a lie by omission in some regards. (laughs) Right, right. Um, Your work on on D.C. and I I witnessed this, it doesn't just involve collaboration and work with those up on Capitol Hill. Uh, it includes many other agencies uh, and individuals. Just in a general sense, what are some of the other organizations that have been, uh, you know, key to the work that you do? Um, yeah, you recognize I, SAMHSA, NIDA. Right, right. Well, um, on the government front, 
Um, there's at NIH, there's NIDA, National Institute on Drug Abuse, National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, um, National Institute on Mental Health. And there's actually behavioral health is spread across all of NIH. I mean, believe it or not, um, one of the agencies that spends the most on behavioral health research is National Institute on Aging. Um, they, they spend a lot. Um, there's also the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. You know, they, they have an interest, you know. So there's, um, there's the NIH. Um, there's, of course, you know, SAMHSA um, and, and, and HRSA. There's the White House uh, has the Office of National Drug Control Policy, uh, formally, you know, informally known as the drug czar, although yep. they've shied away from that title um, as of late and they prefer director. Um, you know, and, um, so there's, there's those government agencies. It really is. And there is also, uh, an interagency coordinating committee, uh, that, that coordinates all that on the advocacy front, on the association front, there's a few, there's some groups that have always worked together, um, because we have so many common goals. There's NASADAT and I, it's alphabet soup in, in Washington. Yeah. National Association of State Alcohol Drug Abuse Directors. Those are the SSA directors. They have an office here. There's Treatment Communities of America. There's Faces and Voices of Recovery. There's, um, you know, uh, National Association of Drug Court Professionals. So there's there's two kinds of, uh, of collaborators in D.C. There's ones that are specifically behavioral health substance use disorders like the ones I mentioned. Um, and we have coalitions like, you know, addiction leadership group, mental health liaison group. We work in coalition. Then there's the larger general health organizations that used to tangentially support us, but with the opioid epidemic really got involved. Um, it's, it's funny how the opioid epidemic brought a lot of people out of the woodwork. Um, there's the uh, Trust for America's Health. Uh, there's the American Public Health Association. Uh, there's a... Um, you know, a group called um, Community Catalyst, um, Safe States Alliance, you know, um, you know, on and on and on. Groups that have an interest in the general public health and the general general welfare that, that, that we also collaborate with on common goals. And the, 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 the thing about collaboration in D.C., no one goes it alone. <laughs> it is too big and there's too much going on. You cannot get anything done alone. Uh, but we were talking about the macro micro before, and um, we have an exp uh, there's a um, at the top level, you have to work together to get the largest, best package in general for everybody. And then as it gets smaller and smaller, your circle kind of narrows. There's when it comes to funding, we were talking about Rosa and appropriation. There's something we call the bird pie, which is what is a bird pie? You put it out for the birds, and the birds come and they all peck at it. You know, and the bird. So when you're talking about funding, first, you have to find out how much funding is available for the entire government. So there's a group called NDD United, Non-Defense Discretionary United. And we advocate for the largest amount of money for all non. And this is everybody, education, transportation, health, you know, uh, you name it. We all come together. Then you see how much money is available for um the uh, Rosa's Committee, Labor, Health, Human Services, Education. So you may partner, so health partners with labor and education just for that bird pie, and you peck at it, and it's a little smaller. Then you see how much is available just for HHS, and all the health groups get together, Coalition for Health Funding, 
you know, um, ad hoc group for medical research funding, other groups, you say, this is what we want for HHS. Then it breaks down further. How much money for SAMHSA? Then the addiction leadership group gets together and says, okay, just addictions. How much do we want from SAMHSA? So um, you collaborate, but how much and with whom depends on the size and scope of the issue. So, um, you know, it's a... Um, you know, when you're working just on addiction, you collaborate with addiction groups and maybe some general public health groups. When you're advocating for um, just larger general public health, because there's no denying the crossover between substance use disorder. If we have an issue with, say, uh, hepatitis B or HIV, we need to work with AIDS United. We need to work with harm reduction. You know, harm reduction coalition is another uh, group I should mention. You know. Um, you know, it, you can't do that alone. It's too much to take on. Um, so, um, and let's say you need to work on criminal justice. Uh, criminal justice in and of itself is too much for the SUD community to take on. So you work with, you know, um, groups that work like the National Justice Institute or, um, you know, Fraternal Order of Police, National, you know, I mentioned the drug court. So, the issue will dictate who you work with, and the size will determine how many people you work with. One of the things that's uh, important to the CCB in our relationship with you is the fact that we have access to other organizations where we can support each other and thereby um, not only have our voice heard, in, in, but to share a voice uh, with other organizations on what's important. You know, that's as important as any relationship with with members of, of Congress. Um, just to kind of close it out, and I, I do have to apologize to everybody for my uh, loud beagle in the background now and again. Andrew, your beagle's much better, <laughs> much better behaved than mine. Um, sleep on the couch, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but much of the future of our workforce, and this is a big issue for, that we've talked about, this is a big issue for the CCB, uh, is the future of the workforce. And it lies in the hands of our federal policymakers. I mean, I know it's impossible to look ahead, but uh, just if you could, if there's one thing about the workforce that you would prioritize moving forward, what would that be? I know one of them that you focused on, which wasn't very popular amongst many, it's individuals with master's degrees, the importance of having that um, for more of a national voice. And I support that. I think you're right. It wasn't well received by a lot of people, but I think it's the right idea. I would have to say number one above all is, and this is a, it's a doozy, but um, it's, it's the ultimate goal is to have our professionals reimbursed at a rate commensurate with other health professionals of the same experience. Uh, bachelor's, master's, whatever it may be. Um, if you are a master's in SUD, you need to be reimbursed at the same rate as a master's in social work. Um, there is, we talk about stigma in treatment. Stigma, that stigma is a, I guess an apropos description would be virus that has spread throughout public health and throughout government. Think about it. When Medicare and Medicaid were created and when, you know, our, our public health system, in quotes, as for as much of a system as it is, which isn't much, was, you know, came to being in the 60s, substance use disorders were misunderstood. They were considered a mental health disorder. And through the 70s, the stigma, 
you know, of, of, and through the war on drugs, if you use drugs, it's your fault. You're a junkie, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. You're not worth our time. So by translation, the people who provided the treatment were not worth the compensation. Flash forward 40 years, now we're in an environment where everyone, almost everyone in policy, I can't say everyone, but those who matter in policy understand addiction and substance use disorders are a disease. They're not a, you know, as we always say, they're not a moral failing, so and so and so. Um, so the people who treat this disease deserve the respect and the pay <laughs> that people who treat other you know, diseases of the brain or otherwise, you know, deserve. Right now, um, the reason I think, you know, we always talk about two things for our workforce, recruitment and retention. Mm -hmm. The federal government has really done its part in terms of recruitment. They could do more, but they've stepped up loan repayment. They've stepped up um, uh, career ladder. They've stepped up um, investment in peers. They understand the need for a greater workforce. The problem, as I see it, is not recruitment, it's retention. I look at all the statistics, and they all say that the average stay in the, as in, in the employment uh, as a substance use disorder professional is three years. Why? Be, number one, the pay is crap. So reimbursement for, um, for these services needs to be commensurate with the same as any other, um, you know, work that is done in in behavioral health and and in general health. That's number one. And the only reason it's not is a is a carryover from that stigma that the professionals who do this work are just as expendable as the people who suffer from the disorder. And we've gotten past the latter we need to catch up with the former. Yeah. At a local NASW, National Association of Social Workers uh, conference here in Connecticut, a couple of years ago, I heard a social worker talk about stigma marginalizes addiction professionals. And I thought that was a true statement. Um, you know, the, I have my own issues that I talk about in terms of credibility issues in the field. Um, but yeah, the feds have done their part. Um, you know, yeah. obviously, they can do more, but they and, and put into play. And I know we're 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 coming up on 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 uh, on, our, on our time, but I want to say it's you see in pieces of legislation and policy statements all over. Give everybody access to quality care, and yeah, in theory, that's great. So we all know about parity, and we know about the fight we went through for its implementation, and the fight we continue to have for its full implementation. You know, and everyone says everyone's entitled to quality care. Problem is the quality of care isn't out there simply because of a lack of the number of professionals. So I think the most important issue facing our profession is this, unfortunately, not only the lack in size of the profession, but the lack in diversity as well. We both know through our work how important cultural competencies are and how important experience is. And we, we're not going to build an experienced workforce if people keep leaving after three years. We need incentive for them to stay in the profession. You know, and the stigma, you know, is maybe the the idea, but the action that goes with that is discrimination, and we do see that. So the uh, and our former single state agency director here in Connecticut, uh, Pat Reamer, had said that it's you know we have to stop talking about stigma and start talking about discrimination if we want to see a change. I, I completely uh, and agree. I think that that's that's a good start. Andrew, I appreciate your time. Um, thanks for joining us this morning. And uh, we'll talk again soon. 
I look forward to your updates. Okay, my pleasure to uh, to be here this morning and to uh, to work with you for as many years as I have. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. And to everyone else, join us next time.